Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Well, hey, everyone. Thanks again for joining us. I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but in case you did not know, I am a millennial, which means that I grew up alongside the American Girl Company. Um, I My childhood was marked with playing with American Girl dolls, um, reading American Girl books. In fact, um, I have still saved my Samantha doll from when I was younger, hoping that if I had girls one day, it would be nice to pass that along. I do have three girls and I have not yet trusted them with my American Girl doll, but maybe that time will come soon. Um, but all to say, it, it has been especially troubling for me to read some of the recent headlines related to American Girl, um, specifically in their latest guidebook called A Smart Girl's Guide on Body Image, um, which is like a go-to book for young girls that are hoping to understand just their bodies more and how to celebrate their bodies and I mean, let me just say that having grown up in a culture that really highly sexualizes young girls and women, I can affirm that more books are needed to help celebrate all different kinds of bodies and show girls how wonderfully God has made them. But that is not why American Girl is in the news. Jim, do you care to update our listeners as to what's behind the controversy? Yeah, and and I share. I, I kind of feel like I grew up with American Girls too, with because of my two daughters. And um, I remember Rebecca. It was uh, Felicity, and with Rachel, it was Kirsten. So it was Williamsburg Colonial, and then the uh, the uh, Pioneer Girl. And they still have all that stuff. And I feel like I have all that stuff because we went through a lot of Christmases getting all that stuff. Uh, the company was started in 1986 by a woman named Pleasant Roland. And uh, her goal was to combine her love for, for history and, um, and educational you know, products to inspire girls. Um, it didn't stay under her leadership too long because it, she, because it did really well, but she sold it to Mattel in 1998. And I think a lot of people feel like it took a turn under Mattel that it didn't have under her. Um, but to your point, what's in the news of late? Some parents, many parents are um, fuming over uh, the book that you mentioned, uh, the discussion of gender expression and identity that is captured in that book, A Smart Girl's Guide, uh, Body Image. And um, it, particularly there's one chapter and it's called Gender Joy. And it explains all these pronouns and gender expressions and, and gender identity issues. And it gets into cisgender and transgender and and it gets into being uh, binary and um and what do you do when you have problems with this? Now, now keep in mind, uh, this is written for a 10-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it advises that if they have any issues or questions about gender identity, they have an organization in the back of the book that they encourage the child to reach out to um, and uh, or to talk to a trusted adult, uh, which seemingly parents are kind of left out of that equation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, they, it talks about how you'll be, you know, taken or introduced to a, uh, specially trained doctor and, uh, to get the, and then it goes into how you really need to do this because if you don't get help, 
if you don't get this addressed in some way, um, then um, you're not going to be mentally healthy. And um, and then it gets into what it is that that doctor may uh, suggest, which includes choosing gender affirming clothes and taking puberty blockers and mm. a whole host of things. So um, it, it really has been seen as just indoctrinating innocent children, uh, planning questions and thoughts in their heads that wasn't even there and immediately jumping to uh, invasive tactics and surgery and, and hormone blockers and such. And American Girls uh, stands by its decision to publish mm. the book Um and uh, so there you have it. Hmm. Well, we tackled the topic of gender back on episode 21. And I definitely think our listeners would benefit from a re-listen of that episode. But it just seems like, I don't know, in the past year or so in particular, we have seen a lot of tension grow between the LGBTQ effort and traditional Christian beliefs. And it just seems like more and more businesses and organizations and I don't know, celebrities, influencers and the like are being pressured to have to make a public stance or a statement on whether they are affirm or reject all things LGBTQ. Do you do you feel that way too? Or is it just Oh, me? I mean, I, you know, I've, I've long said that there's been this, 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 it, and I would call it, it's, it's rather hypocritical, uh, switch where, uh, early on the many people within the LGBTQ movement said, listen, all we want is the freedom to live our life the way we want to live it. And, you know, love, who we want to love, marry, who we want to marry and, and pursue whatever relationship we want. That's all we want. And it, it, that's proved to be very disingenuous because once they received all those things, the agenda very quickly pivoted to now we want to make sure that we not only force this on, in, into on other people's lives, we want to force people to act in compliance with it or even to affirm it and to enable it. And so, and if you don't affirm or enable it, um, then we want you penalized. And so it's like before, don't penalize us for being this way. And now is we want to make sure we penalize you if you say anything about this. And so um, it, it has shifted uh, quite a bit culturally, just even in the last five years. But yes, to your point, companies have been pulled into the culture wars. Mm -hmm. And in a way, particularly over the last two years, three years, COVID particularly brought a lot of it in. Uh, people demanding that they take stances. Um, and a lot of companies, you know, this is like their worst nightmare. It's like, I'm not in the culture war business. I don't want to speak out on this, but it's being pushed a lot, often by employees who have seen their company, and this has been written about in many places, and another cultural observation is that increasingly, particularly younger workers view their company as more than just the place where they work. Uh, it is it is their home, it's their identity, It's they want it to be their tribe, they want it to be their church, they want it to be their community, they want it to be everything. And so as a result, they say, you know, I can't work for a company that doesn't, you know, take, get out there and be politically active and get out there and take stands and gets involved in the areas where I want my life to be involved because they, they, they view their company that way, which is older executives are just like shaking their heads saying, when did this happen? And they don't even know quite how to, to deal with that kind of expectation from their business, but it's created a lot of tension. You've seen it play out with Apple in Texas and Disney in Florida and, um, and company execs are just being pressured to take stands. And again, largely, from everything from immigration to, to vaccines, and it's largely from uh, their employees and and by some consumer advocates that say, I want to know where you stand because I don't want to do business with you if I don't feel like you're going to be part of whatever my ideological agenda might be. 
Um, you know, I'm not, not it's, I don't care if it's a good hamburger. I need to know what the company stands for, which is why there's been a lot of culture wars around ch- something like Chick-fil-A, yeah. uh, which has deeply ingrained Christian values. And it's become a question like where students want to, you know, uh, go on the war path against having a Chick-fil-A on their campus, or they do want a Chick-fil-A on their campus mm-hmm. and it becomes a culture war um, to whether or not you get um, uh, two pickles uh, on that bun. <laughs> and so... Uh, it, there has been, I think, um, backlash to uh, some business activism. Obviously, you've seen that with Disney. You've seen that with others. Uh, and American Girls are certainly a, a case in point. Yeah, it's almost like businesses are kind of like taking on a personality for, or, or being asked to take on a personality. That's, yeah. 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 Um, you can certainly feel free to continue to talk about you know, just the LGBTQ issue um, if you want to. But I, I, for my next question, I was kind of hoping to pivot the conversation a little bit because um, I want to revisit something that I know you've mentioned on a previous podcast episode, but probably not at the um, the length or the depth that I, I would hope for our listeners to hear you talk about that. Um, and it's the whole concept of the disappearance of childhood. Because I think in particular with what's going on with like American Girl, I don't think anyone is arguing, and I'm sure there are some people, but I'm, I don't think that most people are arguing that today's children should never at any point in their life be exposed to LGBTQ issues or anything that's controversial for that matter, but rather that they shouldn't be exposed until a certain time or in a certain way. Can you spend a little bit more time kind of outlining the various sides of that argument and then where you land? Yeah. um, You know, that whole idea of the disappearance of childhood, you know, it's taken on, you know, it's a broad umbrella, but it really can go back to uh, the work of a sociologist named Neil Postman who wrote a book called The Disappearance of Childhood. And uh, it was one of his most provocative works. And he wrote a lot of very important sociological uh, works. Um, his thesis in that book was that children are being um, robbed of their innocence, being robbed of their naivete, uh, their ability to even be children. And he contended that in our world, um, that we're asking children to embrace mature issues and mature subjects and experiences long before they're ready. And uh, he argued that the very idea of childhood, and I, I think he's, he's spot on, the very idea of childhood is that there is a time when a young person is shielded, protected, sheltered from certain ideas and experiences and practices and expectations and knowledge. That's what it means to be a child. Uh, so, and um, they're sheltered from adult secrets, uh, particularly sexual ones, uh, certain facets of life. Uh, it's mysteries, contradictions, it's tragedies, it's violence are not considered suitable for children to know. Uh, only as children grow into adulthood are mature themes revealed in ways that children can assimilate uh, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. Uh, Postman's thesis, uh, thesis was first put forward in 1982 was when that book came out. Uh, but it's just it was just prescient. I mean, when you look at our world today, we have 12 and 13 year old girls who are among the highest paid models, for example, and are presented as knowing and sexually uh, enticing adults. You've got children's literature. I, I don't think it exists. I don't think children's literature no longer exists. Young adult fiction uh, is as mature in its themes as anything on the adult list. The language of adults and children, including what they address in life, has become almost you know, conflated, virtually the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is virtually uncontested among sociologists that the behavior, language, um, 
attitudes and desires, uh, even the physical appearance of adults and children are becoming indistinguishable. Even the children on TV act like adults. They don't differ significantly in terms of their interests or their language or their dress or their sexuality from the adults that are on that particular show or program or film. Uh, they make the same knowing wisecracks and they, they, they toss out the same sexual innuendos. And, uh, but Postman says that when the line between the adult world and the child's world becomes blurred, childhood no longer exists. Childhood disappears. And so that was the nature of his thesis. And I think he was correct. Mm. You know, the whole idea that there's a, a correct time for something, it really struck a chord for me several years ago when I read um, C.S. Lewis's The Space. Oh, can I, can I add something there? Oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Uh, uh, I, I, I just thought, having said all that, <laughs> um, because you, you, you had this in your question and, I, and I, I neglected it. Having said everything I just said about the disappearance of childhood, um, some things invade. Uh death comes to mind. Uh, if there's a death of a parent or even the death of a dog or a pet, I mean, you, there are certain things like that. You say, well, I can't protect my child from that. So are you saying that therefore, you know, I've just robbed them of their childhood? No, no, no. It's not the eradication of all things serious, which is a part of life, whether you're five or 55. It's the, it's the, um, it's the eradication of all things adult. There's a difference. There's a difference. And, and, I, and I think that that's an important thing. So I, I just want to be clear on that. Um, there are some very serious things that invade childhood, but that doesn't mean that we foist adulthood onto childhood. Mm. I'm gonna okay. have, I was going to say, I'm going to have you tease that out here in a minute. But what I was going to say was that, um, yeah, kind of just this whole concept. I mean, you articulated it in the words of Neil Postman, but it, it came to light for me, interestingly, reading um, C.S. Lewis, Lewis's book, this well, series called The Space Trilogy. Um, we've mentioned that before, but in the second of the, his books, I think it's called Paralandra, he, he does this really cool thing where Lewis reimagines Eden and the interplay between Eve and and the serpent. And there's there's so much that is rich in that book. But something that really stood out to me in light of the conversation that we're having is that he draws this connection between sin and maturity. And essentially, he makes the argument, and he's not the only one, other biblical scholars have made this argument too, but that in particular with like the scene in the Garden of Eden, that it was not that God never intended for Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit, but rather that it was forbidden until they were, in Lewis's words, he uses the word older, which he uses synonymously with like mature. Um, in other words, he's essentially arguing that um, there should be a period, and in our conversation, we're calling that childhood, that is guarded from some knowledge um, until a time when we're older and more mature to process that information well. And so kind of forgive this long intro, but I have, I have several questions here in light of that. And so I'm interested in the way that you would draw boundaries. I mean, we've said childhood, but um, it, I want, I'm wondering where you would draw that boundary of childhood. And then um, what information, especially nowadays, you think belongs in that not until you're older category? Yeah, and here I would agree with Postman, where he says, you know, the, uh, one of the clearest areas where there needs to be a line drawn between childhood and adulthood has to do with areas related to sex and sexuality and sexual expression and sexual activity and behavior. Um, let me let me give you an example um, of something I read about about a year ago. 
is is when it, it came out in the news. And I, I remember blogging about it at the time. Um, there was a, the, the, I read the headline of a article. I was just doing some news surveying and, and it was about how a Danish, about a Danish cartoon, uh, and, and the character's heroic penis. Hmm. And at first I thought this was a stupid attempt at humor, almost something like SNL would do. And, uh, or maybe it was clickbait to a porn site. I don't know what it was, but I, but then you know, this was on the site, though, of a respected British newspaper. I remember it was on the, in the Times. And so I, I, I began reading the article, and it was about uh, a public television, the equivalent of PBS in Denmark, uh, the, the branch that did children's programming like the folks that do Sesame Street here. And uh, it was an animated series that was aimed primarily at children. Now, get ready for this aimed and developed for children between the ages of four and eight. That was the demographic between four and eight. And it was all about a man with a prodigiously long penis and feats of heroism that he would do with this unnatural endowment. I mean, you you can't make this up. Oh my gosh. Um, And, uh, you know, there were, there was at least some outcry in Denmark, not a lot because it was, you know, a ratings hit. And um, one Danish media presenter, I remember, said something like, you know, I can't understand why children are being encouraged to take an interest in a grown man's huge magical penis. And I I thought to myself at the time, well, that's a start. (laughs) That's a a good beginning point to think about. Um, And another person said, you know, I don't think that looking at adult men's genitalia uh, should be turned into something normal for children. Hmm. You know, and and. See, that's that's what we're talking about. No, it shouldn't be normal for children. Um, how can this possibly be defended? And it was interesting to me when when they were asked, they were asked by journalists, you know, how can you defend doing this for children? Um, and they said something to the effect that we have a long tradition of making content for children that takes them seriously. And I thought, no, you don't. You're not taking them seriously at all. You're not even taking them as children. Um, you know, you and so uh, making a television program about a grown man's oversized penis for a four-year-old is not taking a child seriously. It's ripping their childhood away from them. It's making them even more vulnerable to pedophilia hmm. uh, by our praying pedophiles, without a doubt. It's inviting them into adult sexuality, and it is vile. And you can't help but have the words of Jesus come to mind. You know, it'd be, you know, you've caused some of these little ones to sin and, 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 you know, it'd be better to have a large millstone hung around your neck. Mm. I mean, the judgment of God on this is, is, is very clear. Mm. I feel like I have to ask, you touched on this before. I told you I was going to have you tease this out. So this might be a good chance for you to do that. But like, is this whole conversation that we're having like a privileged conversation? Like I'm like thinking, not every family around the world has the means to shelter their kids from the really harsh realities of the world. I mean, some kids just by, I don't know, the nature of their circumstances or their family dynamics or their particular culture, like they're just forced to grow up earlier than other kids are. And so what do you do in situations like that? Can I, I want to play with some of your language. Okay. When you said talk about being forced to grow up. Hmm. Um. I, 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 yeah, that, you know, I, 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 I've traveled extensively around the world 
I've been over 40 countries and 40 countries and, and so many of them, some of the poorest of the poor areas of our world. And uh, just this, this past um, uh, summer, I was in the Philippines with one of our missions partners that uh, they have a compound, a safety compound where girls rescued from the brothels or from online uh, production of pornography, child pornography, they're, they're, they're rescued from that. And they're, they're living in this, this protective community. And we bought that land, we built the building. We're, we're, we're supporters of that ministry. Okay. Um, those were young and these are girls, terribly, terribly young, mm-hmm. terribly young. I think the youngest, one of the youngest girls there, she was like eight when she first came. And most of them were like all elementary school, middle school. Uh, we both know of another missions partner. We have an orphanage in Argentina um, and, uh, I just saw f- footage from, uh, Liliana, an interview we did with her where they had a girl as young as three come to them with sexually transmitted diseases Yeah, and she'd already been raped and abused. And I, you know, you, your mind can hardly even go to this. And so when you talk about the harsh realities say of, of poverty, uh, and what these children have gone through, it's, it's horrific. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say there's a difference between harsh realities uh, of poverty and and abuse or the destruction of childhood. Okay. Now, I think those children that I mentioned had been terribly abused, and obviously their childhood deeply violated. And and but there's a difference between that happening and um, and being forced, you know, that that's, that's, that's not about being forced to grow up. That's about abuse. Hmm. There's a difference between abuse and being forced to grow up. And, and I think that there shouldn't be this sense of, of, well, you know, I need to help my kids grow up like these other kids because I don't want to lead a privileged, soft life. So that's not what be- growing up's about. And that's not, and there's a difference between abuse and being forced to grow up and disappearance of childhood and, and these other things. So I, I would just say that I, I, I think that we're talking about maybe two different things. Hmm. No, that's helpful. It's interesting that you use that word abuse because, yeah, I mean that it must be different because to think about the conversation that we're having, like nobody, nobody's saying like, oh, what American Girl is doing or that it, it is like abusive for children. But I think that in some ways you might, yeah. Just oh, I would say it is. Yeah, I was going to say, I, was like, I think Absolutely. that if people use that word, it just brings a different dimension yeah. to that argument. Yeah, mm-hmm. when you rip childhood away from a child, when you when you force these adult themes on them, that's abusive behavior. Mm-hmm. And it's wrong. They're, they're not meant to endure that or go through that. And so we are talking about, you know, abuse. And so um, as opposed to, uh, well, we've just pro- we've got our children in a little protective bubble in the West due to materialism and affluence. And, and you know, in the real world, the kids would all be, you know, reading this gender book by American girls. And that's a little crazy to me. Well, tease that out a little bit more. Can you talk to me about what you observe to be the greatest consequences of skipping childhood? Well, I mean, I could certainly get into the consequences of, of, of the abuse and what I've seen. And, and I know that like in extreme cases of abuse, like with like in the Philippines with, with these girls, uh, that were in the brothels or stuff. I mean, they, they have enormous psychological damage and enormous emotional damage. And, and there's so many things that they're having to wrestle and work through, but on the, let's, let's throttle it down a little bit to just kind of the, like what we're talking about, exposing young children to things and disappearance of childhood and not, you know, more, more stronger forms of abuse. 
um, I think it opens the child up. Uh, I think it uh, opens a child up to abuse and and uh, destructive behaviors. I think it lays the foundation for dysfunctional adulthood. Um, it, it lowers culture as a whole. I, I think one of the things that that, that um, I'm still reflecting on and, and trying to draw the dots, connect the dots, is how the whole existence of childhood um, uh, preserves a lot of cultural boundaries needed for culture not to decay further than it already has. And, and you know, we talk about the importance of salt and light and the role of a Christian and, and, and that in terms of the preservation and, and of culture and preventing more moral decay. But I think in just terms of the overall scheme of things, when you look at all that has happened in our culture, that and many things that we've talked about, you know, the the, the dissolution really of, of marriage and that becoming not just simply, you know, uh, gay marriage, but also uh, polyamorous relationships, polygamous relationships, and, and just the devaluation of all things marriage to where it's just, you know, and then you have the devaluation of the family. And, you know, I sometimes feel, and I think I'm right, <laughs> but at least on this, I can say that the last bastion of cultural decadence is the disappearance of childhood. Hmm. Okay, so if you're not the only one here. You know, other parents are feeling this way and they're trying to, um, to I don't know, to, to protect their, their kids more. If they're feeling like there are organizations or, I don't know, influence or whatever who are trying to overstep the boundaries of their kids' adolescence, American Girl would kind of be the example in our conversation, how should parents respond? And, and I'm specifically thinking, I had actually gotten an email about this um, from one of our listeners who wrote on this topic about American Girl wondering how she and her husband should react, um, if they should react at all, you know, to American Girl Company as a whole, because they had had several dolls, their girls, I think, um, and maybe they had some books in the house, like, um, and they've traditionally supported the company. So should they just kind of ignore that one book? Should they take a firmer stance? kind of rejecting the company altogether. And then I'm going to ask a second question here too, which is, and what if the influence isn't a company, but it's like a relative or a teacher? What do you do there to protect those kids, those boundaries? Well, I think that you have every right as a person of conscience to vote with your wallet and to make your influence felt. Write letters, post reviews on Amazon and other things, make it clear. And also so that other parents know what's in this book. You know, I mean, there's some basic stuff there that you want to get across. But I, I think that that's helpful because I think that most companies uh, are driven by profit, the vast majority. And if they find that if they do a certain thing and it hurts profit, they tend not to do it again. Hmm. So Pleasant Company obviously felt um, that uh, this was going to, be the right book to put in parents' hands and they were going to buy it and it was going to become popular. Um, let's hope it really backfires on them mm. uh, for the sake of our culture and our children and parents who might unwittingly buy it or read it and think this is the way I should be talking to my 10-year-old. Um, and uh, I'll give you an example of where I, I, I'm, I was glad to see certain things play out a certain way because people did vote with their wallet. For example, with Disney, their recent movie on on the origins of Buzz Lightyear. Mm-hmm. Uh if you had told anybody beforehand, hey, we're going to do a major movie on the origins of Buzz Lightyear, one of the most, if not the most popular character in one of the most popular animation series, they would have said that's a layup for profits and it taint terribly. Mm-hmm. 
And many point to two reasons. One, they took out Tim Allen, mm -hmm. largely because supposedly it was rumored he's a conservative, mm. and we don't want him. We don't want a conservative. Mm. And so they brought in somebody who wasn't a conservative to voice. So they changed the voice, the iconic voice, mm -hmm. for reasons that were thinly veiled. Yeah. And the second thing they did was they introduced a homoerotic relationship into this animated children's film. Mm. And parents, you know, looked at that and said, no, yeah, no. And uh, and the movie tanked terribly. And same thing happened with uh, their most recent movie, too. I think it was called Strange World. Uh, I may be wrong on that title. Strange Things, Strange World. We'll get it right in the show notes. Okay. But it did really poorly. And it had, too, interjected a homoerotic relationship into this cartoon animated feature for children. And parents just voted with their feet. So, um, you know, I, I think that we should feel comfortable protecting our children this way and 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 making choices and and not feeling obligated to a company that starts to do this kind of stuff and i would just say american girls are not the only doll company on the planet it's not the only way to teach your children history it's not you know um you know like uh you know if you really want to like get across like you know the values of felicity and williamsburg and colonial era, hey uh take them to williamsburg <laughs> you know, and start doing that as a family so there's other ways of doing it um if it's a relative or a teacher, again, we've we've talked some on this too on, on the podcast uh, in terms of protecting. And I would just say again, you need boundaries. Mm -hmm. um, and I've said this over and over and over again. And and the and the more time goes by, the more convinced I am of these three big parenting principles: you are to be informed, you are to be involved, and you are to be in charge. Mm -hmm. And too many parents are not informed; yeah. they are not involved with their child's life and what's coming into the, their child's life. And they will act and talk to you as if they're not in charge. You know, like, what can I do? You know, it's the teacher or what can I do? You know, all their friends have it or all their friends have seen it. What can I do? You know, it's, it's, it's on the TV and everybody's watching it. You know? mm -hmm. And, and to me, I, I, I get, uh, I, I want to get a little testy with <laughs> parents and say, Hey, um, you know, buck up, you know, you're in charge. Yeah. And, and, and the whole idea is that you're the mature one and they're the immature one, that you're the parent, they're the child. And, um, and, uh, and so many parents feel like the goal is for their child to like them. Like the whole goal is likability and popularity. And I can't do anything that would make my child not like me or be unhappy with me one day. And, and the goal is not for your child to like you. The goal is for your child to respect you hmm. and, and, to, and to obey you and honor you. And, and, and what's ironic is, is that the parents who think that the way to make their child like them is to be more permissive. Um, what happens is the child does not really respect that in a parent. It doesn't create greater love. And when a child really has a parent whose love, who's bringing truth and grace, who's bringing loveness, but firmness um, are often, you know, have the better relationship with the child to begin with, to end with. And so the very things that some of these parents that don't want to be in charge fear happening happens because of that. Hmm. Uh, so there's an irony there. So we just, we just have to protect our children. And own it. And that means boundaries. And that means uh, being the ones that, again, are informed, involved, in charge. Hmm. Yeah, as a parent myself, that's definitely um, ringing very true for me. The difficulty of that, but also the importance of it. And so um, this conversation has been so helpful because I do think that you walking through what 
what will happen if we don't do this, I think is so important for us parents to hear because you do, you don't we don't often have that vision in every moment of parenthood with every, oh, yeah, like you said, like, oh, they're just watching the show at their friend's house or playing this video game at their friend's house. Everybody's doing it. But I think that when you have that parameter of like, it, if, I, if I'm not informed and in charge and involved, this is what I'm setting my child up for. And when you frame it that way, it really does kind of help put priorities in their proper place and help us to make um, tougher decisions. So I appreciate that. Well, thank you for this first conversation of the new year. Uh, If you guys are listening, for those of you who are listening, just look forward to a whole another year of awesome um, podcast discussions. And um, yeah, we are so grateful for you. And we hope this new year brings wonderful things for you. And we're um, excited to have you listen in on some more conversations. Thanks.